Welcome back for episode 39 in our study of the book of Revelation. This episode is called The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I'm Sam Bracken, your host. Our teacher is Dr. Breck England, who is teaching us about the book of Revelation by relating it to the Latter-day Saint Temple experience. In our last episode, we saw the fall of Babylon, which was a symbol for the purifying of the earth before the Lord comes again. In today's episode, he comes. Yes, the prophet Joseph Smith said in Doctrine and Covenants 133, verse 19, he says this, It is time for the coming of the bridegroom. Go ye out to meet him. So what's going to happen? We're about to take part in a great wedding ceremony. Let's get into Revelation um, chapter 19. Moving along, aren't we? Yes, we are. We're in 19. Yeah. Yeah. So heaven opens, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and true. The bridegroom is coming to claim his bride. Do you remember how this works? Mm -hmm. There's been a betrothal, Mm -hmm. an engagement, right? Right. Uh, Called in Hebrew the Mm erison. And that's when the marriage contract, which is called the what? Ketubah. The Mm ketubah, is signed and sealed. Now there's a waiting period. Now we might call it the engagement period. Mm -hmm. It's a space called the Mm kiddushin. In which the groom prepares a place for the bride. Yeah, this all sounds very familiar. For the bride and groom, it is it is essentially a time of waiting, a time of trial, time for learning patience. Now the bride and groom belong to each other by covenant, but they can't live together yet. Because there has to be a testing or a trying time, mm-hmm. uh, which is really similar to the engagement period that people go through in uh, today it's also it's also a time of preparation isn't it like to get to get ready for the everything yeah, yeah to get everything ready yeah the the groom has to either build a house for her or prepare some kind of place for the bride to live so they can live separately right as a family finally when the groom's father decides remember this yeah the I groom's do. father decides when everything's ready the groom doesn't decide nobody decides yeah the groom's father decides. Yeah. The snowman knoweth when the Savior comes. Right, exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. The groom's father decides when the time is right. Then the groom, the, he parades to the bride's house like a thief in the night. Now, to us, a burglar moves very quietly and stealthily, right? But in those days, they would blow a ram's horn and bang on cymbals, and they'd create this big pandemonium. It was a celebration. It was a party, okay? So the groom's men, the groom and the groom's men, and the bridesmaids, you remember the the, the ten virgins, mm-hmm. okay? Mm-hmm. They, they blow the horn, bang the cymbals. In that culture, burglars made a lot of noise, okay? <laughs> um, and then the actual wedding takes place that is called the, the Nisuin, okay, in Hebrew, Nisuin. So that's the basic outline of the whole book of Revelation. And it's also the basic outline of the plan of salvation, right? Right. We made a covenant, and then in the pre-mortal existence, we made a covenant. We come here, it's a period of testing and trial, see if we can prepare ourselves to fulfill that covenant. And then um, if we pass the test, the Lord will come and take us into his family. And then there's a big celebration. 
Yeah, just like the parade to the bride's home. This is going to be a joyful thing when the Lord comes again. The Lord will descend at the sound of trumpets with angels and saints who are caught up when he shall come in the clouds of heaven. And um, that's the wedding party. Okay, <laughs> that's why so many people are involved. In being, hey, it's time for the wedding. Okay. Now the bride, which is the church, has to be all ready. She's proven worthy of the bridegroom. Here he comes. The church itself has been purified. As Isaiah says, um, the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. In other words, the Lord has purified all those who are willing to come to him, the repentant. The daughter of Zion is a Jerusalem that has been purified by the Holy Ghost, which Isaiah calls, quote, the spirit of burning. You know, even today, before the, before the wedding, a Jewish bride will take a special ritual bath called the tevila, uh, which symbolizes her purity, okay, it's, that she's purified. The spirit of burning represents the love of him who will, quote, rend the heavens and come down. The presence of the Lord is as the melting fire that burneth, says the Doctrine and Covenants. 33. Please notice, the fire is a two-sided symbol. It purifies, but it also destroys. So let's read Revelation chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore, which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And her smoke rose up forever and ever. So the fire that purifies the hearts of the righteous consumes the great whore which did corrupt the earth and her smoke rose up forever and ever. The fire burns, according to Malachi 4, verse 1. The fire burns all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So what does it mean? It shall leave them neither root nor branch. Well, these are the people who refuse to repent and refuse to enter the temple covenant. They do it fully understanding what they are doing. By refusing the sealing ordinance, these proud, arrogant souls lose their links to both ancestors and posterity. In other words, they get cut out of the family. They forfeit their places in the eternal family. And that's what Malachi is saying. And what Isaiah means in uh, chapter 5, verse 24 of Isaiah, he says, quote, as the fire devoureth the stubble and the flame consumeth the chaff, so their root, meaning the wicked, their root shall be as rottenness and their blossom shall go up as dust. Okay, neither root nor flower. Well, they lose their family connections. That's what that means. They lose the eternal family. Okay, so now the bridegroom appears on the scene, and John describes him this way. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew, but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. What does that all mean? Okay, you have to go back to the temple in right. Jerusalem. 
On the Day of Atonement, which is called Yom Kippur, when the high priest left the temple, he was spattered with the blood of the sacrifice. You remember this ritual that took place in the Holy of Holies. He would take the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it inside, and then he would come back out. And that was symbolic of the atonement of Christ. The people would rejoice that their sins were washed away. When they saw the high priest come out of the temple, everybody was purified. Now in John's vision, the Savior is the great high priest, and he descends from the heavenly temple, and his clothing is all covered with blood. So it's, you see, he's, what we're seeing is a depiction of the, um, the ritual of, of the Day of Atonement in the Temple of Jerusalem. And now it is his own blood because um, he is the sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. So he is both high priest and sacrifice. This blood causes Israel to rejoice, the true Israel, the purified Israel. It comforts the repentant, but it also symbolizes the punishment of the wicked. He has, quote, trod the winepress in the fierceness and the wrath of the Almighty God. That's verse 15, which symbolizes the crushing weight that he bore and the blood that soaked his clothing at the hour of atonement. John describes the Savior, but now he's wearing all the tokens of his high priest calling. Okay? The many crowns that he wears on his head signify that he is king of kings. right? And his new name is a key word of power. Okay. Now, this whole parade is something the people of John's time would have recognized. They were familiar with parades like this. Whenever a general won a great victory, people would celebrate the victory with a parade. They called it a triumph. And the conquering general was called the triumphator in Latin, triumphator. He would enter the city accompanied by white horses. That was traditional. And holding an ivory scepter. And he was crowned with a laurel wreath, which they called the Corona Triumphalis, the crown of triumph. And he would wear, now get this, richly embroidered red clothing. Mm. This was symbolic of his victory. More like a king or a divinity than a Roman soldier. It was his triumph, okay? And his soldiers would ride in front of him, dragging the captives to be executed. And the people of John's time would have been familiar with this sort of spectacle, okay? Mm -hmm. So when, when he talks about, okay, here comes Jesus and his white horses, the red clothing, the great celebration, the great shouts of acclaim, this is something they would have been familiar with. I get it. Jesus comes down out of heaven like a general celebrating a victory. Exactly. Yeah, makes sense. John describes the Savior's return as a triumph, a big triumphant parade. The red clothing and the white horses, and the crowns, and the scepter, and the parade of troops. All this scene symbolizes the Savior's total victory over his enemies. But it also says that the Savior had a name written that no man knew on his vesture, on his thigh. What's that about? That's the new name. It's the token of his covenant to save and redeem us, which he now fulfills as the triumphant general, and he has, quote, as you say, on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, why is it written on his thigh in his clothing? It's very interesting to me. In ancient times, when carving a statue, 
of a god or a hero, the sculptors would often engrave the subject's name on its thigh. For example, there's a famous statue of Apollo. It's in Turkey. It's in a museum in Turkey, where Apollo's name is chiseled into his thigh. That particular statue is a celebration of the god Apollo's victory over the evil dragon Python, which threatened Apollo's mother, Leto. If you know your mythology, it's a famous story. That sounds a lot like Christ's victory over the dragon Satan, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. So here, here's John using symbolism that the people at the time would have been familiar with. Oh, it's, uh, it's not Apollo who's going to save us. It's Christ, and he has his name written on his thigh, and he conquered a dragon. Okay, so... The people of John's time would have understood the reference to the name on the thigh. It connects Christ's triumph over Satan with Apollo and the dragon, a story that particularly the Greeks would have known. Also, I think the inscription on the thigh of the triumphant Christ is his answer to the mark on the forehead of the great harlot and the Antichrist a woman, Babylon the Great. The inscription on his thigh, therefore, symbolizes victory over evil. And that's pretty clear. Okay, now we get to Revelation 19, verse 20. The beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Can you explain that? Yeah, again, we have to go back to the temple of Jerusalem. On that Day of Atonement, the priests would perform a peculiar ceremony called the rite of the scapegoat. The high priest would lay his hands on the goat, and he would, by, by doing so, he would transfer the sins of Israel to the goat okay, that was then led away into the wilderness, sort of like, okay, our sin is leaving us. Our sin is being taken away. Okay. According to some traditions, the priests would throw the goat over the cliff, uh, to its death. And this, all of this, symbolized the purification of Israel. When Jesus returns as the great high priest, he will likewise take, quote, the evil beast, and with him the false prophet. Remember these two symbols of tyranny and false prophecy, false religion. One from religion. the sea, one from the land. Right, right. right. Uh-huh. And he, quote, cast them alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. So who's being thrown into the lake of fire here? is the tyrant beast, which represents corrupt governments, tyrants. Uh, he's throwing that whole system into the, the lake of fire. And he's also throwing the false prophet, which represents corrupt, false, oppressive religion. And so in other words, he's throwing all that into the fire. He's not throwing people into the fire. He's throwing that system into the fire. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Of course, uh, the tyrant beast and the false prophet, they don't give up without a fight, right? Can you read for us chapter 16, verses 14 and then 16? The spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole earth to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty into a place called in Hebrew tongue Armageddon. Yeah, this place... Um, Spoken of as Megiddo, a town 
which is between the seacoast and the plain of Jezreel. It's about 80 miles north of Jerusalem. Um, you've been there. What did yeah. you find there? I've been there a couple times. And I found, the, uh, the first thing I found was the existence of probably 35 layers of civilizations in the mm. Megiddo Tell. Mm. It's fascinating. I also found rich, rich farmland, and you can see for miles. It's just fascinating how fertile that land is and how much it produces really vital foodstuffs. And it also is a, it's a strategic point for war. It's like a pinch point. But governments control that area in that part of the world. If, if you control that point, you can control many countries. Yes. I'm not saying it very well, but I mean, I'm trying to articulate. Yeah. It's a strategic place uh, for battle. So, okay. So Armageddon is just a Greek word. It's the Greek form of a Hebrew expression. Armageddon, meaning the Mount of Megiddo. So Armageddon is an actual place. And as you say, in, in ancient times, many armies and much trade uh, passed through Megiddo, which is, uh, Megiddo is a Hebrew word that means place of assembly. Well, that's interesting. So it was like, it, it's like a wide flat plain, right? Between two mountain ranges. Right. There's Mount Carmel on one side mm -hmm. and then there's other mountains on the other side. And due, as you say, due to its strategic uh, location, Megiddo was a site of a lot of conflict, a lot of many battles right. over the over the years, um, various powers. We see it all through the Bible, Book of Judges, Book of Kings. There's a lot of wars happened there. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, um, by the way, the most recent war that happened there <laughs> wasn't that long ago. It was in World War One, when the British fought the Ottoman Empire and, and there was a big battle there in 1918. So it's not that long ago. Okay. As I understand it, Armageddon is the place there will be a great last battle between good and evil. There's a lot of speculation about that. Uh, most people think this battle will consist of many nations coming together to fight against Israel and are ultimately defeated by God. Uh, but if you read the scripture closely, you, you learn a little more about it. The Armageddon prophecy may be figurative. Uh, as well as literal. Because it, it was such a traditional battlefield, Armageddon symbolized for ancient people a decisive place where conflict played out, sort of like, um, like the word Waterloo is for us. When we say someone meets his Waterloo, what do we mean? Well, it means uh, to be defeated like Napoleon was defeated at the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. and it, it, but it means more than just the Battle of Waterloo. Right. It means... It, it's, it, it's more than... It's the last battle. Yeah. It's where you yeah. get your butt kicked. Yeah. <laughs> for good. Yeah, for good. <laughs> Waterloo was the end of Napoleon. Right. Okay? It was. And, and his army. Now, at Armageddon, Satan meets his Waterloo. Okay. Our LDS scholars uh, down at BYU, Draper and Rhodes, they say this, quote, as with the symbols of Babylon the Great and the Euphrates River, Armageddon should not be taken in a literal sense, but in a symbolic sense. Okay. Unquote. Armageddon is a symbol, like, like Waterloo is a symbol for us. So when we say somebody meets their Waterloo, um, we mean uh, that's the end of him, right? Yeah, right. It, it doesn't mean that he's going to Belgium. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> to, to go out... 
on the field of Waterloo and actually fight. It, no, it means it's symbolic for us. It means he's you know he's sort of met. He's come to the end of that. Yeah. Okay. He's yeah. met his Waterloo. So now, if you pay close attention, you'll notice that at this point in the story, the triumphant appearance of the Savior from heaven indicates that the battle's already won. Oh, wow, that's cool. Okay, battle's over oh. when the Savior appears. Right, right. Christ does come to do battle with the forces of evil. However, the war is never described. And in any case, it's an odd sort of war. It's really an odd war. In the King James Version, verse 15, we're in chapter 19, verse 15. This is very, very important, so pay close attention to this, folks. In the King James Version of verse 15, the Savior carries a rod of iron to rule the nations, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. Now that sounds like, you know, he's going he's gonna to draw blood, right? But, this is important. Joseph Smith retranslated this verse. Okay? Joseph Smith radically changes this passage. And he translates it this way. This is verse chapter 19, verse 15. And if you turn to your Joseph Smith translation, you'll see this. And out of his mouth proceedeth the word of God. And with it he will smite the nations. And he will rule them with the word of his mouth. So the Battle of Armageddon is a war of words. It sounds like it. Sounds like it, yeah. In Joseph Smith's translation, the inspired translation, instead of a sword, the Savior's weapon is his holy word. And instead of carrying out some nightmarish massacre, he expounds the gospel to the, to the nations. Like the war in heaven, which was not, you know, a war of swords and bloodshed. It's a war of words. Like the war in heaven, it's a war of words. Instead of smiting the nations with a sword or a fist, Jesus will smite them with truth, with the sharp sword of his mouth. That is... Instead of ruling them with an iron rod to beat them, he will rule with the iron rod of his word. No one dies in a war of words. So why all the talk about massive death in the Battle of Armageddon? It says in chapter 19, verse 17 and 18, An angel cried to all the fowls of heaven, Come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of captains, and the flesh of mighty men. What about this field of corpses being torn apart by birds? You get this battle scene from that kind of language, right? It's pretty creepy. Yes. What about that? It is. Well, Jesus gives the answer to that. In Matthew 23, he says, quote, Wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. So, Likewise shall mine elect be gathered from the four quarters of the earth. So the Lord defines, or identifies rather, as a sign of his coming, a swarm of scavengers circling the carcass, which he equates with all uncleanness. In other words, just as the spiritually alive 
will be gathered for salvation, so will the spiritually dead be gathered for judgment. Wherever they are, uh, says the DNC 45, 32, wherever they are, my disciples shall stand in holy places and shall not be moved. By contrast, those who die in this war are the powers of the earth and their minions who fight against the Lamb, along with the institutions that perpetuate the rule of Satan. In other words, Satan's system of tyrannical governments and false religions and corrupt commercial interests will be destroyed at Armageddon. The system will be destroyed. Now think of the great shout of freedom among the liberated that we hear in chapter 19, verse 5, quote, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. Now, although the King James Version says that the wicked are slain with the sword, Joseph Smith corrects that. He says the wicked are slain with the word of him that sat upon the horse, which word proceedeth out of his mouth. That's chapter 19, verse 21, in the Joseph Smith translation. So they're slain with the word. And what we're seeing is the dead of Armageddon actually are dying spiritually, okay? Okay. Okay, so it's a spiritual death that we're seeing. What we have to worry about may not be some gigantic final war, I think. Our modern prophets are warning us not about some great battle, but they're warning us about, quote, a moral Armageddon. And that's the, that's the term they use, our modern prophets use, a moral Armageddon. This, this phrase was actually used by President um, James E. Faust in a conference talk. He said, what we have to fear is the moral Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Also, President Spencer W. Kimball said this once, and it's always impressed me. Quote, we have had our last chance. If we do not now devise some greater and more equitable system, Armageddon will be at our door. The problem, basically, is theological, he says, and involves improvement of human character. It must be of the spirit if we are to save the flesh, unquote. And that's from a, a talk he gave called The Foundations of Righteousness back in uh, 1977. What he meant was that our society looks a lot like that of Babylon, right? Or like that of the Nephites just before the Savior visited them. And the people were beginning to be distinguished by ranks according to their riches and their chances for learning. And there became a great inequality in the land. So President Kimball is saying this is the symptom of moral Armageddon that the Lord will put an end to. It's a deadly pattern of injustice. And that deadly pattern of injustice led, in the Book of Mormon, it led to the destruction at the very end of the Book of Mormon, right? Mm -hmm. um, after generations of peace, what happened to them again? They began to be divided into classes based on wealth, and business flourished. Quote, they did traffic in all manner of traffic. That's in 4th Nephi. Exceedingly mm -hmm. wicked, one like unto another. And the... Uh, the tribes contended, and wars of annihilation ensued. We might call this pattern of self-destruction 
I call it the Armageddon process. Mm. That's my term. Mm. Pride and covetousness set off a vicious cycle of injustice and hatred and a culture of selfishness and self-righteousness grows like a cancer and it inevitably kills the host. Armageddon is the death spasm of a wicked society. Are we in the middle of the Armageddon process? The Armageddon process is surely underway. Technology adds unparalleled power to it, to tribal hatreds. Remember, the whole purpose of Satan's program is to produce blood and horror on the earth. So we bring on ourselves an additional part of the Armageddon process, and that is environmental upheaval. Um, there are two LDS scholars, um, Drs. Hatch and Hall, and they point out that, quote, events of Armageddon also include major natural disasters and chaos, making it an all-encompassing event that culminates in the destruction of the wicked, unquote. Our heedless polluting of the environment is driving unprecedented climate change, totally outside the range of historical variation. And President Dallin H. Oaks agrees with this. He said, he sees this process underway. He said this, and um, looks like uh, back in 2017, he said, These are challenging times filled with big worries, wars and rumors of wars, epidemics of infectious diseases, droughts, floods, and global warming. Prophets see environmental turmoil as part of the moral Armageddon process. If you add to their witness, the testimony, this is from Dr. Cummins 88, verse 90, I love this. The testimony of the voice of thunderings and the voice of lightnings and the voice of tempests and the voice of the waves of the sea heaving themselves beyond their bounds. Well, we're seeing this right now. Right. Okay, all this is happening. The Armageddon process also includes infectious disease. Way back, over a century ago, there was the, the huge Spanish influenza outbreak that killed millions of people worldwide. And during that uh, 1919 epidemic, uh, this is what a general authority had to say. This is Elder Melvin J. Ballard, who said this in conference. I think this is very interesting. Quote, I do not understand that the plague of influenza shall continue until the Lord comes, but I do think that one form or another of chastisement shall follow, with its seasons for repentance, for the preaching of the gospel. But if they shall not listen, then another affliction will come, until men shall either repent or they shall perish, unquote. Isn't that a great, that's a fascinating yeah, that's statement. Yeah, very powerful. So it's not one great epidemic, it's one epidemic after, after another. another. Yeah. The Lord is going to keep chastising us until we wake up. The Armageddon process, it consists of repeated chastisements, right? Interspersed with, quote, seasons of repentance. So the Lord keeps giving us a chance. Now there's war, there's climate havoc, there's epidemics, all that stuff will intensify as we get closer to the end. Quote uh, from Doctrine and Covenants, all things shall be in commotion, and surely men's hearts shall fail them, for fear shall come upon all people until the time runs out. Now, I, I think that we're seeing the Armageddon process happening. Right. So, okay, let's sum up. The Armageddon process is here. All the signs are here. Now, there's blood and fire and vapors of smoke. Before the day of the Lord shall come, 
the sun shall be darkened and the moon be turned into blood and the stars fall from heaven. That's uh, DNC 45. So what are we talking about? The blood of warfare, right? The wildfire and huge clouds of smoke of a warming planet, clouds of pollution shrouding the sun and darkening it and the moon. Wow, we bring it all on ourselves. We are the ones who are making this happen, not God. He doesn't want these consequences to fall on us, but they do because that's natural. It's the natural outcome of our, of our own behavior. Just, just as the Lord called Noah to warn about the flood, he called Joseph Smith to warn of the fire. Hmm. Um, we may yet start such a fire ourselves, right? In a, in a thermonuclear war, for example, the sky would burn and smoke would darken the whole globe, a possibility that uh, is really fearsome, and it would turn the whole earth into emptiness. I remember being in a foreign country once. Um, uh, it was at night, and the moon rose, and it was bright red. And I was saying to the guy next, he says, what, why is it so red? He says, oh, this is a very polluted city. <laughs> mm -hmm. you're, you're seeing you're seeing intense amounts of smog between us and the, the moon yeah, yeah so it turns red right why does it turn red is, is the lord you know turning it into a giant blood transfusion no we're turning it red right okay now Jacques Adil says this and I love this quote if the scorching that is greater than the sun is the atomic bomb or something else or if it is the brightness of his coming, the result is the same, right? Isaiah said this, quote, The light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour the thorns and briars in one day. Close quote. Now, so, when the thorns and thistles and briars that afflict Adam and Eve are consumed and burned up, we enter a new, more glorious stage in the drama. And that's for next time. That's exciting. Paradise sounds like paradise is on its way. It's all good. <laughs>